We'll hear argument now on number 89-1679, Summit Health Limited versus Pinhas. Mr. Waxman. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the principle to be applied in this case is that jurisdiction under a Section 1 of the Sherman Act requires an allegation and, if controverted, proof that the restraint alleged to have been imposed by the defendants has, as a matter of practical economics, a not insubstantial effect on interstate commerce. Accordingly, it is not sufficient to allege, for jurisdictional purposes, as Dr. Pinhas has, only that either the plaintiff or the defendants are engaged in interstate commerce. Uh, petitioners believe this principle stems from the plain language of the Act, the purposes for which it was enacted, the cases interpreting the Act, including McLean, and the extent of congressional power under the Commerce Clause. Uh, we start by looking at the plain language of the Act. Section 1 prohibits those conspiracies in restraint of trade or commerce among the several states. The purpose of that language at the time it was enacted was to allow the federal government to supplement the acts of states in regulating anti-competitive activities which individual states could not, namely anti-competitive activities which went beyond the state and went from state to state. Uh, as this court held in its early decision in Apex Hosiery, the addition of the words or commerce among the states was the means to relate the prohibited restraint of trade to interstate commerce for constitutional purposes so Congress could penalize restraints involving or affecting interstate commerce, which it perceived as the reach of its power under the Commerce Clause. Uh, as this court went on to note in the Frankfurt Distilleries case, this results in an obvious distinction between a course of conduct wholly within a state, often referred to as purely local, uh, and conduct which, although local, is, is an inseparable element of a larger program which depends for its success upon activity which affects commerce among the several states. Uh, the import of the precise language of Section 1 uh, has been highlighted in a number of decisions by the Court, most notably in Gulf Oil Corporation v. Cop Paving, with a case which the Court relied upon in its subsequent decision in McLean. Uh, in that case, the Court drew a distinction between the language of Section 1 of the Sherman Act and the language of the Clayton Act. It held that the words restraint of trade or commerce among the states meant that the jurisdictional reach of Section 1 was keyed directly to effects on interstate markets and the interstate flow of goods. And of import in that case was Justice Marshall's concurrence in Gulf Oil, where he noted that the phrase, among the several states, embraces all commerce, save or accept that which is confined to a single state, as does not affect other states. Now, in so holding, the Court went on to state that as a result of its provisions, a jurisdictional inquiry under the Sherman Act was to be a particular one, focusing on the facts and circumstances presented in each case. The reason for that particularized determination was the need to identify a specific restraint, because Congress was regulating restraints, which were among the states. That need would not exist if all that was required was to point to something called a line of commerce or a class of activities to create jurisdiction. It would be as if this Court simply read out of the Act the words uh, or com among the states and commerce among the states, and simply said that this was an act to prohibit restraints of trade, period. That is not what the act says, and its plain language requires more. It is the language of Section 1 which also distinguishes its reach from other cases where Congress itself, other statutes where this Court has considered that Congress itself has defined the specific persons and activities 
that affect Congress and therefore they affect, excuse me, they affect commerce and therefore require federal regulation. If we look at cases such as Perez v. United States, Russell v. United States, even Heart of Atlanta, Wicker against Filburn, those are all cases where Congress has engaged in specific fact-finding to find that the cumulative effect of some particular evil uh, has an effect on interstate commerce. A general statute such as the Sherman Act has not been accompanied by specific congressional findings to the effect that a class of activities, in particular, has an effect on interstate commerce. And that's why under Section 1 of the Sherman Act, it is required to engage in a case-by-case review of particular allegations and particular complaints to see whether, in fact, there is a restraint which significantly, substantially, and adversely affects interstate commerce. Mr. Waxman, what, what do you do about our uh, opinion in McLean? Didn't, didn't we say there that all that had to be shown was a logical connection, not, not between the particular activity and interstate commerce, but, but between, uh, I, I mean, the, the particular offense, but rather between the business activity in general and interstate commerce, namely Broker, brokeraging. Well, I, I don't read McLean that way. You don't? Uh, I think the way I read McLean is that uh, the court looked at a situation which involved a brokerage for four years in New Orleans and looked at an alleged conspiracy uh, to fix commission rates, which were part of the price. And the price would affect the volume of sales, and the court engaged in some detailed fact-finding, actually, based on a real record to say that that volume of sales affected interstate commerce as a result of financing from out of state uh, or title insurance that came from out of state. Uh, so I think factually it's, it's, one can distinguish McLean on that basis. Uh, admittedly, there is language in McLean which we find to be uh, ambiguous, for example, and does talk about general activities in the brokerage business uh, or the general activities of one of the parties. However, I don't believe that that is the actual test that McLean established. Indeed, Chief Justice Berger at the time, specifically toward the end of the opinion, restates the federal jurisdictional requirement that there be, as a matter of practical economics, a not insubstantial effect on interstate commerce uh, by the restraint that has been allegedly imposed by the defendants. So in the case of McLean, the restraint that was allegedly imposed by the defendants was a conspiracy to fix uh, an inseparable part of the price of real estate, and that Price-fixing activity uh, would affect, uh, as the court found by looking at the actual facts in question, uh, title insurance coming in from out of state in very significant volumes of commerce. Uh, this was a case that involved uh, real estate brokers throughout New Orleans over a period of four years. I think it's also noteworthy uh, in looking at the McLean decision itself, uh, several things to indicate that McLean did not attempt to set a new rule. I think some commentators have suggested that it, it did set a new rule. First of all, the cases relied upon by McLean are, for example, Gulf Oil, Gulf Arb, Trustees of Rex, where clearly no new rule was at work in those cases. Uh, in addition, the Chief Justice at that time, Judge, joined Justice O'Connor's concurrence in Jefferson Parish v. Hyde, which in footnote 5 specifically says that there's got to be an effect on commerce for there to be Section 1 jurisdiction. Uh, in addition, I think that the practice uh, this Court has engaged in over time is to stand by a settled authority uh, which would say that you leave statutory interpretations with respect to jurisdictional scope in place and leave the task of modifying that scope to Congress. There's no indication in the decision in McLean 
that this Court was attempting to, if you will, supplant Congress and, in petitioner's view, amend the statute to read out the words uh, among the states. So I would distinguish uh, McLean first by saying that I think it's distinguishable from the facts of this case. Uh, Second, I think the plain reading of of McLean and the activity that was actually engaged in by the Court shows that the Court simply didn't uh, identify real estate brokerage activities as an activity and say, we need go no further. The Court, I think, went through great pains to say the activity we're focusing on is price fixing. And how does price fixing affect real estate transactions? So I don't believe McLean stands for a position uh, contrary to that which is being urged by the petitioners in this case. Price fixing in general or price fixing in this particular case with respect to these particular real estate transactions? I'm not sure I understand the import of the question. What was the focus of that case? Was uh, price fixing in commissions by all the brokers in New Orleans over a period of four years. So they focused on that particular transaction and found, uh, at least my reading of the case, found that that was part of saying the price. Because the broker's commission is part of the price. And if you're going to affect the price, you're obviously going to affect the volume of sales. Uh, And the court felt uh, inclined to even go beyond that and say, well, what difference did it make? The difference it made were hundreds of millions of dollars of out-of-state financing, title insurance, uh, and so forth. So it obviously went farther than that to reach the result. Um, As I mentioned, I think that uh, McLean also is consistent with the cases that preceded it. And the two cases of great import that preceded it were Goldfarb, uh, and trustees of Rex Hospital. Now, in Goldfarb, the court went to great lengths to examine the particular transactions uh, in question. That was the legal services involved in that case to find that those specific legal services were coincidental with the interstate real estate transactions in terms of time, more importantly, in their view, in terms of continuity. Uh, the critical reason for that determination was the need to distinguish essentially local restraints, which would have nothing to do with interstate commerce, Uh, and the specific real estate services provided in that case, which did affect interstate commerce. And this conclusion, I believe, is is, uh, made clear by the language in Goldfarb, which specifically recognizes that there may well be legal services which have no effect on interstate commerce. If one need only identify legal services as a line of business or a class of activities that affect commerce, there would have been no need to first trace the particular relationship of the activities in question in that case, with interstate commerce, or to go on and say that there may well be legal services which have, may have no effect on interstate commerce. Mr. Waxman, uh, I, I want to ask you a question about McLean, following up on Justice Scalia's question. There is some rather specific language there at page 242 of 444 U.S. Work. It says, petitioners need not make the more particularized showing of an effect on interstate commerce caused by the alleged conspiracy to fix commission rates. And the sentence before that says it, it, it's enough if you show an est- a substantial effect on interstate commerce generated by the brokerage activity. Now, it, it seems to me those two sentences certainly are, are not themselves ambiguous. That y- you can show it by showing the activity that the plaintiffs, rather that the defendants are in. You don't have to show that the actual restraint affected interstate commerce. Well, I read that language uh, in the context in which the case was brought. Brokerage activity was the activity which was infected by the conspiracy in that case. It was the activity which was the price-fixing conspiracy itself. In addition, I also read the language to, to focus on a slightly different point, 
which is that in order to make the jurisdictional showing, you need not prove your case. You need not prove that there was an actual effect or a specific particular effect which was successful. And read in that context, I don't believe that this language changes the, the position that the petitioners are espousing. Then you think the court has a different thing in mind for a jurisdictional showing as, a, as opposed to the, the showing you have to make on the merits? I believe that the court, uh, I believe that it's not required for jurisdictional purposes that you prove that the conspiracy would, be, would have been successful. And in that sense, it is different. Jurisdiction is more of a threshold inquiry. But would you have to, in, in proving your case on the merits, you wouldn't have had to show the conspiracy was successful, would you? Uh, in proving your case on the merits, I still believe that you would have to show that there was uh, a substantial effect on interstate commerce, uh, which is exactly what the court goes on to state uh, towards the end of the decision, where it indicates that either side, uh, for example, it says that trial respondents will have the opportunity to make their own case contradicting this factual showing and goes on to indicate that they may be able to show that, in fact, significant amounts of interstate commerce are not required, were not uh, affected, or that they were. It says petitioners at trial may be able to show that respondents' activities have a not insubstantial effect on interstate commerce. So the court apparently found that for the substantive offense, there may be some further showing before there is a result of a resulting violation. For jurisdictional purposes, however, the court was not going to require the same, if you will, degree of showing to show that jurisdiction existed in the first instance. Does that really make a lot of sense, do you think? Uh, the same language applies to the jurisdictional finding as to the ultimate offense involved. Uh, in my view, uh, the court may wish to preliminarily examine jurisdiction before concluding that there is, in fact, a violation. The court may not want to have the parties go through the entire discovery process in order to determine whether, in fact, it has jurisdiction in the first instance. So in my, there is some reason to go about that process, and it appears to me that McLean, in fact, looked at the case that way. Now, rather, Let me ask you a question. I'm a little puzzled about what you said. Supposing they, they allege a, a brokerage conspiracy, such as you describe, they prove that the defendants all got together in a room and agreed on a fixed rate of brokerage, and then two weeks later they all decided they would abandon the agreement. They didn't, but for two weeks they had this agreement in place, but it just never affected a single transaction. Would a crime have been committed or not? I don't believe jurisdiction would exist under the Sherman Act if nothing ever happened. That's because there is a requirement that there actually be some sort of restraint on interstate commerce. You really have to prove more to prove jurisdiction than you do to prove the crime. Because it, it's kind of hornbook law that the conspiracy itself is the heart of the offense. Under well, the conspiracy would be the heart of the offense. I don't have any quarrel with that. The question is if the conspiracy never didn't go anywhere, didn't affect anything whatsoever, uh, then in my view you, you wouldn't have jurisdiction. Why do, you, why do you have to take that view? Couldn't, couldn't you take the view, that, that, which is still a good deal short of what the government proposes, that the test is whether the conspiracy, if successful, would have actually affected interstate commerce? Yes, I agree. I don't have to take that view. Uh, and one could stop significantly short of that position, uh, both in this case and in other cases that the government might suggest. Mm -hmm. I don't believe the view is required. 
I was answering the question, I guess, in the context of my views on jurisdiction, but as opposed to the successfulness of the offense. Your view is that there actually has to be an effect on, on interstate commerce. Uh, not, not what, it's, it's just not that if, this, if it were successful, there would have been an effect. No, I think my view, no, my view is not that you have to go to the success of the particular conspiracy that's alleged, but that its logical conclusion would have resulted in a restraint which substantially affects interstate commerce. Well, then what you're really arguing is not that they must allege an effect, but that they must allege a tendency to effect. Isn't that true? Well, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I would know the, the real difference between a tendency to effect Well, a tendency that may not be realized. Uh, no, I think I would have to back up somewhat from what I said and indicate that what they actually would have to allege is that, is that there would be a logical connection between success, if you will, and a substantial effect on interstate commerce to create the Section 1 jurisdiction. Uh, the government's view, however, is, is significantly different than that. Uh, according to the government, one need only show that the, the anti-competitive behavior occurs within something they call a class of commercial activity, which affects interstate commerce, or that the defendants are in a line of business, which itself affects commerce, uh, for Section 1 jurisdiction to be established. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that that's not what Section 1 says, uh, one can envision that virtually every activity that you engage in on a daily basis, uh, actually from eating to uh, clothing yourself to delivering a service or providing for shelter, inevitably has some role as a class of activity or line of business which would affect interstate commerce uh, in the aggregate. Uh, accordingly, the government's views appear too broad, without limitation, and certainly without placing any credence in the notion that the Commerce Clause does not have uh, unlimited power. Moreover, if the government's views were correct, uh, this Court's analysis in Yellow Cab, Goldfarb, Trustees of Rex Hospital, and even the language of McLean, finding a real commercial relationship between the anti-competitive conduct and interstate commerce would have been totally unnecessary because legal services, real estate sales, uh, hospital building in and of themselves, obviously uh, as a class of activities, uh, significantly affect interstate commerce. Um, acceptance of the plain meaning of the statute also doesn't mean, as the United States and as the various states that filed an amicus brief have said, that for some reason uh, anti-competitive activities will go unchallenged. Uh, anti-competitive activity meriting attack on a truly local level uh, is still the subject of enforcement activity at that level. Uh, it's well to remember that the purpose of the passage of the Sherman Act was to supplement uh, state antitrust enforcement efforts, not to supplant them. And uh, this court has already recently held in California v. Arc America Corporation that the federal antitrust laws do not supplant but may be supplemented by other local state government enforcement efforts. Now, the principle to be applied in this case requiring uh, a restraint which has a not insubstantial effect to interstate commerce also mandates that the holding of the Ninth Circuit on interstate commerce uh, be reversed for a number of reasons. First, without any factual record before it, or even a factual allegation by the plaintiff, the Ninth Circuit apparently made findings that peer review proceedings in and of themselves have an effect on interstate commerce, and peer review proceedings affect the entire medical staff of a hospital, and therefore interstate commerce is affected. Now, both of these statements, as I indicated, are unsupported by any record. All we have is a complaint, and actually they're incorrect. Uh, Congress, in passing the Healthcare Quality Improvement Act, noted that uh, peer review is not essentially commercial activity uh, 
in the typical case and would not have an adverse effect on interstate commerce, certainly in every case, as the Ninth Circuit seemed to be positing. Uh, Second, the conclusion that a medical staff proceeding or even a series of medical staff proceedings affect either the hospital's entire medical staff uh, in every case or the hospital's interstate commerce in every case, no matter who was or was not actually affected, no matter what the scope of the peer review proceeding might have been, again, is simply a factual assertion that is nowhere in the record and is uh, not, not the case, in particular through the illustrations by the uh, Amicus Hospital Associations. I think the Ninth Circuit's conclusion is analogous to saying, because I'm a member of the California Bar Association, which is mandatory in California, that I am somehow affected by every state bar disciplinary proceeding, no matter what the subject was, no matter what its result was, whether I knew about it or I didn't know about it. Uh, there is no decision where the court has gone that far uh, or even suggesting that somehow interstate commerce is implicated uh, every time someone is excluded from a medical staff, an organization, an association, or some other membership. And for that reason, the government's views and the Ninth Circuit's views uh, are simply too far. Um, in short, I think the Ninth Circuit decision under any test, whether it's a government's test or whether it's a test that petitioners believe should be applied, um, should be reversed. I think, in conclusion, the Court should reverse that portion of the Ninth Circuit decision, holding that the existing allegations of the complaint were adequate to assert Sherman Act jurisdiction. I think the Court should reaffirm the standard required for Section 1 jurisdiction is an allegation and of controverted proof that anti-competitive restraints must be shown as a matter of practical economics to have a not insubstantial effect on the interstate commerce involved. And Mr. Chief Justice, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Waxman. Uh, Mr. Silver, we'll hear now from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Sir Shirai was granted in this case to resolve a conflict in the circuits in in the interpretation of McLean. We have the ninth in Western Waste, the third in Cardio Medical Associations, the fifth, which no one cited in their briefs, Park, El Paso, Board of Realtors, and the 11th Circuit uh, in Shahway, all deciding that under the clear language of McLean that Justice Scalia and Justice uh, uh, Stevens referred to, uh, provided a general business activities test. Uh, The remaining numbered circuits, uh, except for the fourth, uh, which has uh, thus far avoided a determination on the issue, have determined that the McLean reading is much more narrow and applies an infected activities test. What this, this case is controlled by McLean, but I think we have to take one step back, if we can, to the Rex Hospital case. No one calls it the hospital building case, but the Rex Hospital case, which came before it, that's a plaintiff's case. McLean is a defendant's case, and the Pinhouse case is a plaintiff-slash-defendant's case, and allow me to explain, if I may. In Rex Hospital, a hospital sued for antitrust violations against another hospital. It asserted that the second defendant hospital interfered with its activities to expand its interstate commerce. The amicus in that case, uh, represented by Weisberg and Aronson, asserted uh, quite uh, compellingly in this court in a unanimous opinion by Mr. Justice Marshall determined that the plaintiff's purchase of medicines, that the plaintiff's receipt of money from Medicare and Medicaid from the federal government, that the plaintiff's receipt of supplies from out-of-state sellers, that the plaintiff's insurance receipts from out-of-state insurance companies and the plaintiff's treatment of patients from out-of-state was a sufficient basis in interstate commerce to justify jurisdiction. We then come to McLean, the next case that the court deals with. By the way, although Goldfarb is in the middle, Goldfarb is an in-commerce 
didn't have to be, I don't think, but the plaintiffs alleged in commerce. So Goldfarb is a, is a problem in terms of, in fact, the lower court judge McLean misunderstood that. Goldfarb, they alleged in commerce rather than affecting commerce. In McLean, we had a defendant's case. Plaintiffs, plaintiffs were people who wanted to sell their houses. Everywhere they went, there was a uniform 6%, I think, uh, rule for commissions. Plaintiffs had no interstate commerce. They just wanted to sell their house. They had to rely for jurisdiction on the defendant's activities, and only the defendant's activities. If it was the defendant's activities that were not involved, there was no jurisdiction. This court found jurisdiction, and in so finding, it found that and looked at uh, two things. One, the plaintiff need to show a interfered with activity, as well as uh, demonstrate a substantial effect on interstate commerce generated by the brokerage activities. In Western Waste, the Ninth Circuit, the First Circuit to interpret McLean, said that these activities could be independent of the violations in Western Waste. The Tenth Circuit filed a decision much later that's different in some respects. But what the court, there is a claim, by the way, in the commentators, apparently, uh, I think that there is no ambiguity in the opinion in McLean. I think that McLean clearly holds that if you show those two things, you have jurisdiction. You may have an offense in some other portion. You may have your case in some other portion. And indeed, if I may just for a moment uh, depart and, and answer, if I may, uh, I think Justice uh, Stevens' uh, question. Uh, if you had those two weeks of unaffected violations, Justice Stevens, the plaintiff, the harmed party, would certainly want an injunction against those two weeks ever occurring again. And it seems to me to say that unless you have an effect, you cannot get injunctive relief. And certainly the government would be heard adversely to that. Once you have a conspiracy, an attempted conspiracy, a criminal activity, a civil plaintiff would certainly want to be able, if you were able to show that, to have injunctive relief. And if the intended effect, or if Mr. Justice Souter says the, the uh, tendency toward to have an effect, would certainly give the court jurisdiction. If there is an ambiguity, and I don't think there is, but if there is an ambiguity, the way you resolve an ambiguity in language is to look at what the court did. It looked at, all the commentators say three things, I think you looked at four things. Mortgage money, secondary mortgage market, title insurance, and there's one phrase in the opinion that appears that one of the plaintiffs in McLean arranged for a out-of-state relocation with one of the defendants in McLean. Now, what logical implication did there was there between those four things? Mortgage money came from out of state. Secondary mortgage market, some of the mortgages that were procured by the sale of real estate, which was in which the commission for the sale was price fixed, were sold to out of state. Title insurance companies, some of which who insured the title of the houses that were sold as a result of the commission, were from out of state. And by the way, the record was some. The mortgage money was some. There was no specific definition. And then we have the one instance in terms of relocation. Was there a nexus requirement that this court said that the infected activity must have some nexus to that activity upon which it found jurisdiction? I think if you examine what you looked at and what the Chief Justice in writing his opinion looked at, the answer is clearly no. Mr. Silver, what's the, uh, what's the activity here? The <coughs> infected activity? Peer review proceedings, Your Honor, and, and, and peer review proceedings. Where, it, where improperly motivated peer review proceedings is the infected activity. Gen, in general? I mean, there are peer, peer review proceedings in universities, in, uh, you know, all sorts of areas of professional life. There are. And in this case, if the peer review activity is improperly motivated, it then gives rise to a cause of action. But it seems to me, and what we have said and what we have alleged in the complaint, 
is that the peer review proceedings are the door by which you get into the hospital to practice. And that that is the nexus to getting to the interstate commerce, the hospital. So it's, it's just hospital peer review proceedings that's, that's the relevant activity? That's hospital peer review proceedings, yes, Your Honor. Uh, in, in general, or just the peer review proceedings, not just the peer review proceedings of this particular hospital? Peer review, pre- hospital peer review, peer review proceedings provide in its entirety the, the infected activity that allows the door to be closed. And, and by hospital a, peer review proceedings, you mean peer review proceedings in all hospitals throughout, throughout the United States? Yes, I do, Your Honor. There's That's, no geographic limit at all? No, Your Honor, none. That in terms of in testing what is the relevant market, the relevant market is the delivery of surgical ophthalmological services at a hospital. Midway Hospital, before it was a hospital, was, was a piece of ground. They built a hospital, and before they could allow physicians to practice there, they had to have peer review proceedings, some of which resulted in admission, some of which resulted in non-admission. That is the nexus between, that is the door to get to the market, and that's why isn't there? I mean, I, once once you depart from the particular context of the particular offense, I don't know where you define the the, the area. Why, why couldn't the uh, relevant activity be hospital services, or or uh, ophthalmology services, more limited, uh, or, or uh, oph- oph- ophthalmotic surgery? Those are the relevant markets. But that's not the relevant activity. The relevant infected activity is bad peer review as distinguished from the market or the general business activity. That's why he, the opposing count, my brother Waxman, suggests that we have not alleged a nexus. We have alleged a nexus. The, the Ninth Circuit found that we alleged a nexus. I'm suggesting we didn't ha- even have to allege the nexus under, under McLean, but we did. We said that you have bad peer review proceedings, that is, an infected activity when it's badly motivated, and you use that peer review proceedings to stop the delivery of surgical ophthalmological services. We, we allege the nexus, we allege the, the, allege the infected activity, and we allege the, the economic service that is, defi- that is precluded. We can't allege more. We were never given that opportunity. We certainly can allege more. And what, what's the test for whether there's jurisdiction under the, under the uh, anti- federal antitrust laws? In, in my view, under McLean, we determine whether or not the defendant, one of the things is that the plaintiff's activities involve interstate commerce that are now, that involve interstate <laughs> commerce. And we have alleged and we can allege more, but we have alleged that Dr. Pinhouse receives medical, Medicare patients from out of state. Uh, it is obvious that we haven't alleged it, that he has medical supplies that come from out of state, interocular lenses that are very expensive from out of state, and those types of things. So we have alleged some, we can allege more in terms of the plaintiff's activities. That would bring us under Rex Hospital. In terms of under the defendant's activities, we have all of the defendants of various uh, states in which they are involved. Those are the, the activities which are, that, that show interstate commerce and which I think give us federal court jurisdiction under a general business activities test. If you are looking for an infected activity, it is peer review in general or peer review in specific in this case. I think peer review in general is sufficient to satisfy. We don't need it. The, the, uh, the Ninth Circuit found that peer review in general, Justice Scalia, if you have one ophthalmologist who is wrongfully removed by anti-competitive purposes from this hospital, other ophthalmologists at that hospital will benefit. Other physicians may also benefit. And consequently, when the Ninth Circuit said there was a nexus because the peer review proceeding, in general in my view, or peer review proceeding a bad one in an, in an alternative view, 
affects the hospital in its delivery of interstate commerce activities because it eliminates one competitor from that market for competing for ophthalmologic surgery rooms, for general surgery rooms, for general beds, etc. And the Ninth Circuit made a determination. They make a fact finding like they found what was alleged in the complaint. They made a, a, a determination that once you have an anti-competitive peer review proceeding, you can remove that uh, when you remove one surgeon from the hospital, it affects the whole hospital and it affects their interstate commerce and therefore you pass any of the McLean tests and any of the circuits. We're happy to be in the Ninth Circuit, but we could meet the circuit, any of the circuits that have spoken. Um, in this, uh, I think that the, the court uh, in, in the various opinions uh, that it has written, especially McLean, uh, has indicated that two things are important to consider. One. The expanding concept of the Commerce Clause is the expanding concept of jurisdiction under the Sherman Act. Uh, in addition, expanding and changing concepts of business, as Mr. Uh, as the Chief Justice said in McLean, and changing concepts of business uh, are also considered under the Sherman Act. Uh, it is, if I may paraphrase two Justices Marshall, it is both a Constitution and a Magna Carta upon which you are expounding. The Constitution in the sense that when you interpret Sherman One Act jurisdiction, you are interpreting the Commerce Clause because of all of your cases, which both parties have cited in the brief, so you've said that. In addition, to the extent that you limit access to the federal courts in antitrust cases, you limit the Magna Carta that Mr. Uh, Justice Marshall uh, so properly called, I think, Magna Carta Free Enterprise in Topco. Uh, in, in terms of the... Uh, uh, facts, the specific facts of this case, the outrageous conduct of the, of the defendants in this case was to, when they found that the Dr. Pinhouse would not agree to the surgical uh, sham contract they wanted to do instead of the assistant surgeon rule, and, and think of the anomaly of it, by the way. Here they are in February saying, you're such a great guy, we want to pay you $60,000 to be a consultant, and then in April, when he won't return the contract, they summarily suspend him. And, and basically kick him out of that hospital and impair his rights to get into other hospitals. They then have this sham peer review proceeding with no right of counsel, cross-examination, preclusion of witnesses, ordering me off the um, hospital grounds under threat of arrest, uh, in it, it, uh, threatening witnesses. And lo and behold, with all of those adverse things, and Dr. Pinhouse standing with another ophthalmologist, uh, you can read this record and see how well they did cross-examination and, and other things of witnesses, they won six out of the seven charges. And do you know what this hospital did? It filed a false report with the, uh, with the federal, with the, both the state and the federal government saying that the summary suspension had been upheld. And as a result, Dr. Pinhouse has had peer review preceding problems at other hospitals. Uh, as a direct result, we've attached this exhibit B to our appendix. I wanted to tell you that the 805 report of which I am making reference was not available when we filed the first amended complaint. It is not part of this record. I filed a request and a motion with the Ninth Circuit to have the Ninth Circuit take judicial notice of it. I don't know whether they did or they didn't. Uh, they never ruled on the motion to take judicial notice. It is part of, it is part of your record. As I have indicated, I think that the McLean did establish the general business activities test as a result of what you looked at in terms of the, the, the situation. If it involved an infected activities test, and I believe, by the way, that Judge Wiggins did not apply Western Waste. I believe that he applied a much more narrow standard. We fit the infected activities test. Even the particularized test that no court has adopted, no circuit court has adopted, but which is argued, I believe, by the petitioners here, we can meet that view with a leave to amend this complaint. We can allege a variety of things which can occur. 
Needless to say, I do not think that there is uh, any justification for the particularized, which we would have to show that, according to the particularized test, that interstate commerce was adversely affected by the specific removal of Dr. Tinhouse from the staff. No circuit has ever uh, gone that far. But even so, uh, an amendment to the complaint uh, dealing with uh, the implications of that clearly can be done. What has happened as a result of this peer review proceeding is nationwide, through the national uh, reporting statute under the Healthcare Quality Improvements Act, reports regarding Dr. Pinhouse go nationwide. His reports go to the Board of Medical Quality Assurance. Under state law, they are required to be distributed to every hospital in which he is a member. I uh, see that I have five minutes left, and I would like to uh, dedicate that five minutes to the government, that, if I may, unless anyone has any questions. Very well, Mr. Silver. Mr. Wallace, we'll hear now from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The way the Courts of Appeals have described the conflict that has developed in applying McLean is something of a false dichotomy. They generally say that on the one side, uh, some courts have held that the relevant inquiry is whether any of the defendant's activities or the defendant's general business activities affect commerce. And on the other side, courts say the question is whether the challenged conduct, the allegedly illegal conduct in itself affects commerce. The relevant inquiry for analyzing a Sherman Act claim is what is the line of commerce or the line of business activity being restrained by the alleged violation. And it is, in our view, that line of activity that must satisfy the interstate commerce nexus, whether or not the defendant is also engaged in additional business activities that affect commerce, and whether or not the alleged unlawful conduct in itself uh, also affects commerce. And when McLean is read in that light, we believe that it contains no ambiguity. In that case, uh, the complaint was about a price-fixing conspiracy among real estate brokerage firms. The court did not have before it whether some of the defendants were also engaged in other business activities, uh, property management, for example, because those activities would have been irrelevant uh, to the restraint uh, being alleged. And in that light, uh, the two sentences from the opinion that we have set forth on page 8 of our brief, to which Chief Justice Rehnquist has already alluded, seem entirely clear to us. The court first says it would be sufficient for petitioners to demonstrate a substantial effect on interstate commerce generated by respondents' brokerage activity. Petitioners need not make the more particularized showing of an effect on commerce caused by the alleged conspiracy to fix commission rates or by 
those other aspects of respondents' activities alleged to be unlawful. But it does say, Mr. Wallace, respondents' brokerage activity, not brokerage activity in general. It well, at least uh, does insist it's, it's not the whole line of commerce. It's that portion of the line of commerce engaged in by the respondent. Respondents' brokerage activities. And then there, there is a further question whether their effect on commerce should be looked upon in isolation or as one of a class of, of activities that Congress can regulate. But before that question arises, I want to refer to language appearing later in the McLean opinion, which some courts have used to inject ambiguity in, into the opinion. And this appears at page four, 246 of 444 U.S., and the sentence is uh, at the very top of the page. To establish federal jurisdiction in this case, there remains only the requirement that respondents' activities, which allegedly have been infected by a price-fixing conspiracy, must be shown as a matter of practical economics to have a not insubstantial effect on the interstate commerce involved. In context, it seems to us clear that respondents' activities which have been infected refers to the brokerage activities. Uh, if this sentence is to be read consistently with what the court so clearly said just a few pages earlier, rather than uh, to read the sentence circuitously uh, to contradict what the court had already said without ambiguity. Um, and so it, it, it seems to us that the court in McLean uh, did what it was striving to do in the context of the argument that was before it, which was to reconcile its interpretation of the Sherman Act with the general trend of this Court's Commerce Clause jurisprudence. Uh, the Perez case had already been decided at that time and featured very heavily in the arguments before the Court, and the Court was well aware of the generous scope of the commerce power that had been recognized in the jurisprudence. Now, in the case at hand, the alleged restraint enforced through the sanction of peer review is on the provision of hospital ophthalmological services. The complaint alleges that uh, the sanctions were adopted to prevent the respondent physician from providing more efficient services to patients through faster operations and through elimination of an assistant uh, surgeon in attendance at the operations. It is a charge, therefore, of anti-competitive practices, uh, of injury to competition in a particular market in the provision of these ophthalmological surgical services. What if, instead, a nurse had complained that she had been excluded from providing services uh, in this uh, um, activity, services which she seeks to provide in the same manner that they are provided by other nurses. That would seem, uh, on the face of it, to be a less substantial uh, antitrust complaint but that is so, it seems to us, not because the nurse's employment relationship with the hospital is beyond Congress's power 
uh, to reach under the Commerce Clause, it obviously can be reached by the Fair Labor Standards Act, the National Labor Relations Act, OSHA, the Age Employment, uh, the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, uh, etc. But on the face of this complaint, she has not claimed an injury to competition in any line of commerce, just an injury to herself which is at most an injury to a particular competitor rather than to competition, not what the antitrust laws are designed to protect. So if there were an ongoing boycott by the employer because they didn't like this nurse uh, and they blackballed her at other hospitals, would that be the injury to competition that would suffice? She might be able to build uh, up is, enough is that, of an allegation uh, uh, to uh, surmount uh, a motion to dismiss, but um, it, it's questionable whether even with the elements you have added, Mr. Justice, that that still would allege an injury to competition in any line of commerce whether she could show that anyone other than herself is affected by it. Um, um, why, why, again, Mr. Wallace, is the doctor's case different from the nurse's for antitrust purposes? Because he, his complaint is that competition in the provision of ophthalmological services uh, has been the very object of the peer review sanction that was applied against him. He said that he performs the operations faster than uh, other physicians at the hospital, thereby saving the patients from risks uh, uh, of, uh, that are inherent in these corneal transplant well, operations from greater exposure. I take it a nurse might make the same allegations that she assists faster at operations than the other nurses, and she's been discriminated against for that. It, it could happen, uh, but, of course, the case I posited was one where she just claims she wants to provide services in the same manner that they are being provided by others. And another key part of the doctor's complaint was that he thought it was unnecessary to have an assistant surgeon, and this was adding an element of great cost to the operations. Um, so uh, what, what was involved in this complaint was a, a fairly classic allegation of injury to competition. Our, our, our point here in, in showing that the nurse's employment relationship really is within the scope of the commerce power, even though her complaint may not allege an injury to competition, is uh, that the interstate commerce requirement of the Sherman Act should not be distorted into an improper and ill-fitting tool with which to try to perform the substantive screening operation of identifying insubstantial antitrust complaints. But there's almost no line of commerce that isn't, uh, you know, within the reach of the federal commerce. As I understand your argument, you're saying if the, if the activity in question is within the reach of the federal government or the commerce power, and if there is a restriction of competition within that, regardless of whether the actual restriction itself uh, imp impedes commerce, then it's covered. That is, that, is, that is our position, and that is the point made by the 22 states that have mm -hmm. filed an amicus brief in this 
case, uh, agreeing with our position and pointing out that at least one state doesn't have any state antitrust laws at all and pointing out uh, deficiencies in other state antitrust laws and that, as a matter of fact, uh, there is great reliance on the Sherman Act. Let's, let's assume I believe that that was not the original intent and that it was thought that Valentine Acts and other state acts were going to continue to apply. Uh, what would be left uh, that, that would be within the jurisdiction of the states but not within the jurisdiction of the federal government? Can you think of any any restriction upon competition that, that doesn't uh, affect commerce in the, in, in, in the broad sense that the uh, constitutional provision uses? Well, um, one uh, hypothetical we have discussed is an agreement uh, among teenage babysitters to fix prices. Um, uh, that could possibly be an example. On the you, you don't think Congress could pass a, uh, a law uh, regulating teenage babysitters? You think we would strike that down these days? Perhaps not. Mm-hmm. Perhaps not. Certainly if there were two agencies uh, that uh, agreed to fix prices between themselves, it might be shown to be affecting um, attendance at the theater and at sports events and at concerts uh, and could have an effect on commerce. The commerce power is very far-reaching. It did reach uh, the uh, extortions involved in Paris, which were not themselves uh, uh, interstate in nature. The Act does say in restraint of, com- in restraint of commerce among the several states, not in restraint in a field of commerce that happens to be among the states. But we're not painting on a, uh, a new slate here and interpreting that language. This court has said numerous times that that uh, provision was intended to reach to the utmost extent of Congress's power under the Commerce Clause. Oh, but that, that could simply mean that what is meant by commerce is the broadest meaning of commerce, but it still has to be in restraint of commerce. It's just like saying if Congress passes a law saying nobody can kill a ladybug in interstate commerce, Interstate commerce is is given the broadest possible meaning, but you still have to kill the ladybug. With all respect, I do not believe that is a fair reading of those cases, which said that the protection that Congress afforded reached it to the utmost. uh, Well, that's usually dicta anyway in those cases. It it could be considered that, uh, but... Uh, it has been the basis for expanding the reach of the Sherman Act repeatedly as the Court's notions of the reach of the Commerce Clause have similarly expanded because the, the Act has been interpreted to afford the protections to whatever is the currently accepted notion of the reach of the Commerce Power. So it... it it's a form of dictum that it could you know, arguably be part of the ratio decidendi of those cases. And another lesson of this Court's Commerce Clause decisions, such as Wickard against Filburn, is that the substantiality of the effect on commerce is not to be belittled by viewing an individual instance in isolation without regard to the aggregate effect of similar restraints on individuals or the deterrent effect uh, of the sanction applied to this one individual, the deterrent effect on others of uh, similarly attempting to increase efficiency by similar activities if they see that this doctor can be sanctioned for trying to eliminate the assistant surgeon from this procedure. 
And these cumulative effects, which can be widespread but relatively minor in the individual infractions, are important to our enforcement programs, as we've recounted on page 15 of our brief. Thank you, Mr. Wallace. Mr. Waxman, do you have rebuttal? I do. You may proceed. I think that... uh, the principles that are involved here in distinguishing uh, Section 1 from uh, other regulatory Commerce Clause type cases uh, were fairly, uh, not fairly, were clearly articulated by Chief Justice Rehnquist in his concurrence in the Hodel against Virginia Surface Mining case. I think it, where the Chief Justice indicated that cases such as Perez, Russell, Heart of Atlanta, even Wickard against Filburn could be explained why, by what Professor Tribe indicates as the cumulative effect principle where in those cases Congress engaged in specific fact findings, stressing the regulation of local incidents as an activity that was necessary to abate a cumulative evil affecting national commerce. Uh, Under that type of reasoning, commerce could clearly adopt regulations which affect child labor laws, could adopt regulations which affect uh, commerce and agriculture, could adopt many acts which govern specific areas such as the civil rights laws, where Congress itself engaged in the fact finding to show that those activities affect interstate commerce. But despite those holdings, and uh, as the Chief Justice noticed, some broad dicta in those holdings, there have to be limits, and there are limits somewhere, on the commerce power. And those limits are contained in the language of Section 1 itself. Restraints of trade or commerce among the states. Uh, Neither the respondents nor the government chose to address, Justice Scalia, your question about what must that language mean restraint of trade or commerce among the states. And I'm saying even if there aren't any limits on the, on, on the commerce power, there may be limits to the Sherman Act. I think one could read it either way. I think one could read it as there being limits on the commerce power, but the court need not go that far. One need only look at the specific language of the statute itself and construe the statutory language to say jurisdiction under that statute requires the showing that petitioners request. The, the notion that uh, the government seems to concede that two teenage babysitters who are conspiring to fix the price at which they render services would not be enough. Petitioners agree that would not be enough, although Congress could easily call this the line of commerce invi- involving child and home care or the line of commerce involving care of children throughout the country, which would obviously have significant import on an interstate commerce basis for the economy as a whole. Uh, I think that illustration is perhaps the best illustration of why the principle that the government seeks to enforce in this case goes too far. And their example... Suppose, of, suppose hospitals, all the hospitals in a, in a metropolitan area agreed to uh, admit uh, only uh, no more than uh, uh, an X number of, uh, of new doctors to their staff every year. Uh, I would suppose that the physicians collectively involved in that case would allege this had a significant effect on the... And, and then just one sues. Just one, one, one who applied and was rejected uh, sues and says there's a conspiracy to, to limit the availability of medical services in the town. I've been hurt by the conspiracy. Has he? And he says it's, um, uh, it, it affects the interstate commerce because, it, because uh, people come from everywhere to get services. I would assume that that one physician would allege that this conspiracy, which affects more than one physician, namely any physician who might come from out of state to go on the medical staff of the hospitals collectively in that area. So that would be enough in his case. He wouldn't have to show that he wouldn't have to show 
that just excluding him had any effect? Uh, the allegation would be that, uh, using the example you gave, is that more than this physician was affected. In fact, many physicians who may come from out of state were affected. This would affect their own medical practices involving their treatment, potentially of out-of-state patients, purchases of supplies, purchases of equipment, purchases of products, the ability to but, render uh, a, a large He wouldn't have spectrum. to prove that excluding just him would, have to, would uh, affect interstate commerce substantially. I I'm sorry. He wouldn't have to show and prove that uh, excluding only him had a substantial effect on interstate commerce. He would not have to show, given the example you gave, uh, that particular incident affecting him. Well, However, could, if he was the only answer, physician... You could answer my question yes or no. I, no. Yes. Right. If he was the only physician involved as the subject of that particular conspiracy and the effect of restraining him had no substantial effect on out-of-state patients out-of-state purchases of supplies, out-of-state products or equipment, then he would not be able to state a case which created Sherman Act Section 1 jurisdiction. And that is the distinction that is important in requiring a substantial effect on interstate commerce as a result of the specific provisions of Section 1. On that basis, uh, the petitioners believe that this Court should reverse the Ninth Circuit and affirm the dismissal based on the complaint, which is before the Court, which contains no allegations with respect to interstate commerce, no allegations with respect to purchases of supplies, equipment, financing, mortgage money, patients affected, or any of the other indicia that have been used in any case involving restraints of trade among the states to find a jurisdiction under Section 1. What if they allege, let me just be sure I get your point, what if they allege that uh, there was a conspiracy to require an assistant position in all cases? And that conspiracy restrains trade because it imposes unnecessary costs on that line of commerce. And then he alleges, as a byproduct of that agreement, they won't let me have hospital pr privileges because I refuse to practice with an assistant. Does that state a claim? I think that if one could make the, could allege and ultimately controversy make the showing that the uh, conspiracy to impose the assistant surgeon requirement had a specific effect on a volume of interstate commerce, such as it affected the total volume of surgeries at a significant level of those coming from out of state, uh, the total volume of supplies that would be involved in surgeries which could no longer be performed, the total volume of individuals but who might be assistant yes, surgeons. What you're saying is yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, finally, uh, the notion that the, the court should expand the Sherman Act uh, simply because uh, concepts of commerce have expanded uh, or that the Sherman Act is uh, the Magna Carta is no substitute uh, for the specific congressional intent, which is evidenced in the Act itself, which says restraints of trade or commerce among the states. And the Court should not single-mindedly decide, as I indicated at the beginning, to eliminate that phrase from the Act. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Waxman. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.